Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. This is going to sound like a criticism, but it is not meant that way, I promise. Oh, boy. This is like... What a I'm now. sorry, but <laughs> sort kind of, of thing. Yeah. yeah, this is not a criticism. Well, it's something that I have criticized for a long time, but I'm now looking at like, oh my gosh, maybe I shouldn't be so critical, and maybe it's just a metaphor. I should probably explain it. Oh my I'm gosh, now I'm like worried. Right. Like when we go back home to Indiana, where you and I both grew up, we often get like these kind of lukewarm greetings <laughs> from people. We've, you know, <laughs> Midwestern greeting. We've driven 16 hours across the country and like literally sometimes people don't even get off the couch. They're just, they're just like, oh, hey, how you doing? Good to see you guys. Oh, wait. Not I, your mother. Your mother is the warmest greeter there is. She's like Lots busting a move and... to get out there. No, can I just say this? My favorite was when we saw my grandmother. Um, so she was probably, I would say, mid eighties at that point. Okay. This is before she was in the nursing home. And you said, Hi Mama, how are you? And what did she say to you? I'm not dead yet. <laughs> That's, That's what she always said. Favorite. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. Yeah. Oh, that so, was my favorite. So the lukewarm greetings, again, it's I don't know that it necessarily means anything, but maybe it's a metaphor. Um for what we're going to talk about today, the highs that we get, because there are other places we go, you know, again, I'm not trying to compare, but when we go to see my family, it's a, oh, you know, we got to, can't even let you get out of the car. We're trying to hug you while you're still in the car, you know? Or yeah. The greeting spills out into the driveway, and and I've always thought that that was preferable, because someone who's gone through some effort to come and see you, you're exuberant about seeing them. But again, this is just a metaphor for the the highs and the lows that we experience in addiction. Wow, what a transition. How am I going to connect these dots? Whiplash. This is crazy. Yeah. But but here's here's where I'm going. Our brains are constantly seeking homeostasis. Our brains are constantly trying to be in balance. Our brains are trying to find an equilibrium of the neurotransmitters. And when we drink too much, when we become addicted to alcohol, what that looks like in the brain is the alcohol is pleasurable for us drinkers. And our pleasure neurotransmitters in our brain, the ones that people specifically know about, there are more than just these two, but the ones that people talk about frequently are dopamine and serotonin. They are released when we drink alcohol, and in some cases, at the anticipation of drinking alcohol. And so our brain starts to say, oh, you know, if we give, if we give this guy dopamine and serotonin every time he drinks alcohol, but also every time anything else pleasurable happens in his life, like a beautiful sunset, or his kids get a good grade on the test, or a nice interaction with his wife, or he gets a raise at work, if we give him dopamine and serotonin for all of these things... It's just too much dopamine and serotonin. So we're going to hold back these pleasure neurotransmitters and only release them when alcohol is present in the system. That's going to be the new, the new trigger. And the reason, again, that our brains do that is because our brain is constantly seeking equilibrium 
this homeostasis. And by holding back for only when you drink alcohol, that's our brain's attempt to not just be constantly flooded with pleasure neurotransmitters. Now, the downside of that, obviously, is when only the alcohol triggers the pleasure neurotransmitters, life can be a pretty dark and gray and unpleasurable place when we aren't drinking. So that is what addiction is. We get to the point where we need the alcohol to get that jolt of dopamine in our brain. And if we don't have the alcohol, there is no pleasure. So, you know, that's just kind of a really basic explanation of how the neurochemistry of addiction works. Um, For an alcoholic, the highs and lows of addiction are, are really obvious the highs we get overly high. We've had something to drink, something exciting happens, we're cheering for our sports team and they win. We go overboard. I mean, how often have you seen an alcoholic go overboard? That's not a hard memory for you to conjure up, is it, Sherry? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So the so the break you're like, where is he going? We were, no, I'm also we were hugging my grandmother a few minutes ago and no, we were talking I'm also about brain thinking... chemistry. No, I'm just thinking of like, you're right. Like, and that's like just sitting at home watching or it's almost like even if you go to a sports places anymore and people are drinking because we lived very close to Wrigley Field. And so we went to the Cubs games a lot and like it became almost unbearable because there would be people, I, I gotta say, I was really into the games. So it would become unbearable when people would be drinking and then they acted like they were celebrating Really, they weren't celebrating the sport when they did well. They just were celebrating that everybody else was celebrating. They were drunk and stupid. And Our friend who was a Southsider, a White Sox fan, used to say, you're not Cubs fans, you're Wrigley Field fans. You just yeah. like to go there and party. Which, there's some truth to that. Yeah, exactly. We did like the baseball, but... Uh, yeah, I, but so I, you, I think I liked it more than you, but... So I, you are familiar with... Uh, an alcoholic taking it too far. and uh, Also, I sit with... How many people are at the Indianapolis 500? I sit there and yeah, watch that happen. 250,000 people. Yeah, like that happens. Aluminum cans in their hand. Yeah, so so it's really easy to, to picture. And, you know, it's not just sports celebration. We want to stay out too late and we want to drink until the cooler's empty. And we want to party longer and dance more and... Be the last uh, one at the party. We want to have sex even if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And we want to have sex again when we're done having sex, even if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And we just, we just the highs, the the chasing of this high as an alcoholic or any, any drug abuser is really easy for anyone to picture. And then the lows are obvious too, right? The depression, the sulking around, the beating ourselves up because we drank too much, the getting in angry uh, con- conflicts with the people we love, saying vile things. It's not hard for anyone who's had any experience with alcohol, either as the drinker or the loved one, to conjure up pictures of the lows being really low. You would agree with that as well, I assume. Yes. Probably don't need to present any specific examples. It's... I, I do have a question. Since sports is on my brain right now. I wonder, like... How many fights that break out in like sports bars at sports event when there's arguments going on about the teams? I wonder how much of it is like if somebody's really having a feeling of depression and sad because they're drunk that their team lost, but they're just using it as anger. Did you ever transfer like a sad sort of feeling to anger? 
because yeah. it was more appropriate in an outside area. I think that you were pretty open with me about your sadness and showing your true feelings, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a big part of the point that we're making here is that the swings are huge. You can go from being really happy about whatever you're celebrating to all of a sudden, you know, somebody bumps your arm and you spill nine drops of your beer and you're ready to punch the guy in the throat. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I was not much. I mean, I was probably more likely to be the one getting punched in the throat <laughs> than ever throwing a punch. But but yeah, the swings from wild exuberance to depression to anger, all of it, they're just... And the point is, these wild swings from the ends of the emotional spectrum... That's not where our brain wants to live. Our brain wants to live in homeostasis in this equilibrium. So if we get too high, our brain tries to do everything it can to bring us down. If we get too low, our brain is, if it's healthy and it's not, you know, poisoned by alcohol, your brain's looking for something to give you dopamine for so that you can bring yourself out of that depression. Now, that's why alcoholism is so diabolical. If you're depressed and you're alcoholic, your brain has already made this direct one-to-one correlation between um, between dopamine and alcohol, and the only thing that'll bring you out of your funk is the drinking that's mm-hmm. also putting you in the funk. <clears throat> when, Excuse me. So, yeah. I mean, it's like diabolical is such a great. When you were describing the when you were describing the highs and the lows and the anger and the sadness and you know, I kind of envisioned like a ping pong or a pinball yeah kind of bouncing around and it must be it's exhaust it's got to be exhausting for the brain to try to keep all of this i think it is you know like brain processing sometimes makes people tired like we have children that have a hearing loss and so their processing center gets more tired because Works of that harder. so did you, i wonder if like there's been any studies on how your brain is more tired trying to kind of keep all of this homeostasis. I mean, I'm sure there are. I know that it's it's exhausting to be an alcoholic and be, you know, the mental gymnastics yeah. of of trying to decide what the rules are to keep control of the drinking. Am I, am I not an alcoholic? The swings from the highs to the lows. And I think as an outsider, it's it's got to be pretty easy. You know, when you observe it, you just say, oh, you know, this guy's got a problem. But, but if you really step back and think of it from the standpoint of the brain is trying to reach this state of equilibrium, you can see that we're going unnaturally high and unnaturally low, mm-hmm. and that's not a very good place to live. But as the drinker, you start to change, chase that euphoria. I've talked a lot about the fact that when I would be about two and a half beers in to drinking IPAs, that was like the magic moment the bliss point, as they say in food chemistry, where I would reach this equal, or not this equilibrium, this um, euphoria euphoria that was like nothing else in my life. I felt so good. But I've come to believe that while there are, there are plenty of things now in my life, in you know my fifth year of sobriety now, that bring me the right amount of pleasure, that make me feel good, that make my life full and complete and lovely... There's not much that brings me to that that wild swing of euphoria. And for a while, for a long time, I thought, well, that's my penance for being an alcoholic. I'll never get there again. And now I'm realizing, oh, my God, I don't think we're supposed to get there. Because what goes up must come down. 
And so it's kind of better to live in this normal mid-range where the brain is happy, at least near the equilibrium point. It's okay to be excited, even more excited than normal for a little while, but you, you got to understand that um, the downside of that is, um, you know, you'll, you'll probably be sad at some point. And if you, if you live in kind of a mid-range, that's okay. You don't want the wild swings. Well, I think I remember sometimes like memories are coming back of where I wouldn't be as excited about things for like you would. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you would think that I was just so unappreciative or a pessimist. You thought it was all of those negative parts of my personality. Um, And so, I I, I mean, there were arguments over it. Like, I remember one time, like, on our Disney cruise, and we stopped at that um, island. And, you know, our family had to break off because we had someone who was too young to do one of the things that we were going to do with the older kids. And I came back and you were just, you know, you were really drunk, but, <laughs> but you had like had a great time with your youngest and, um, you just, I remember that part of that argument that night was like, you just don't ever get excited about things yeah. you don't appreciate. And, and even during that, you know, first encounter. So I, I, I know this sounds so silly, but I never correlated it with the pendulum swings of the alcohol, you know. Yeah. I just thought, yeah, I was. I was just kind of living in a mediocre life. doing a good job of gaslighting you and telling you it was your fault. Well, and I mean, also, I just think about the differences of our families, like how they interact with us after, you know. So I guess I thought, well, I am. I guess I'm just a whole hum Midwestern girl that nothing really excites me and... Only my temper gets me really upset. Well, I'm really jealous of your ho-humness because the <laughs> wild pendulum swings, even the upsides don't make up for the downsides. They do at first. You know, that's that's part of the progressive nature of alcoholism. For a while, the upswings more than make up for the down the downside because the downside isn't that bad. But as the downside gets bad, as the depression and anxiety worsens, and for a lot of people, as the the aftermath they have to deal with, like DUIs and wrecked cars and broken relationships and financial, you know, tragedies. As those pile up, then the downsides get way, way bigger than the upside swing can ever counteract. So being a ho-hum Midwestern girl sounds pretty good to me right now. I'd take it. I mean, I don't so much. I mean, you did grow up in the Midwest a little bit. Yeah. But your parents weren't from there, so you weren't really truly. You still had a lot of influential personalities also with having uh you know i think your greek ethnicity there's a lot of uh talking of the hands and being excited and, and growing being... hair all over your body <laughs> yeah, no, and like you know just passion and yes well let's so let's talk about this from the loved one's perspective not as an observer an observer <laughs> observer <laughs> Uh, because obviously, as the spouse of an alcoholic, you observe plenty to, to draw your own conclusions. But let's talk about your experience as it relates to these highs and these lows and the pendulum swing. As the spouse of an alcoholic, you live on the downside of the pendulum swing for quite a bit of your time. You, you take this person that you love and you learn to not trust them, to not be attracted to them. To not be sure if what they're saying is true or some kind of a cover-up. You just generally grow apart from them. And as much as you might love them and 
be have your life intertwined with them, you intertwined with me specifically, uh, like with kids and, and mortgage and business and all that, you the time that you spend you spent with me was becoming increasingly uncomfortable and depressing and not fulfilling for you. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes. So as what we've learned is as the loved one, as the spouse, you start to medicate too. Your medication is not necessarily alcohol, but some of the things that we most commonly hear people talk about medicating with, I mean, number one on the list is control, trying to control everything. You can't control how much the drinker is going to drink. You can't control the behavior of the drinker. So you're going to try to control everything else. You're going to control, you know, the all the stuff going on in the household, making sure the kids are all doing well in school and have all the right extracurricular activities, making sure the house is perfect, all, give all the outward appearances that there's nothing to see here and everything's fine. And that that control serves as the the opposing force to the pendulum swing down for the depression and the frustration that you feel, the anxiety about the drinker in your life. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a substance. You're not drinking alcohol, but you, but are, you get your brain is not reaching equilibrium. You are spending too much time in the high anxiety downside of things. That's what I was going to say was like, Yes, you have the control, but then you also have this. So it's a small satisfaction, but in comparison to the anxiety that trying to control, like I would even try to control how the children spoke to one another around you, mm-hmm. especially on Sunday nights when that was kind of your worst time because that you had to go back into the work week and you were losing your weekend and you had had three days of drinking under your belt at that point. So you you were, you know, sometimes really sad and more emotional and depressed, so... Pathetic comes to mind. Okay. You can use it. Um, but that anxiety and that stress, so you've got this, like, you know, short, shallow breath, and your heart is beating a little more, and so the 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 feeling of, of keeping everything organized and contained and controlled is only small in comparison to that level of anxiety that you feel on the other side. So you get a little jolt of, you know, what what's the word? Not peace, but relief, right? Yeah. A little bit of relief from exerting all this control, which... For me, that's is, how it was. I shouldn't but, say that's what well, happens. I think but it's pretty common. It's also exhausting, just like what we talked about. It's exhausting for the alcoholic to have these highs and lows swings. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting for you to be trying to exert control everywhere. And at the same time, you know, manage the, you know, using that to manage the anxiety. All of that is exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. I know this is kind of a subset of the control piece, but another thing that people talk about a lot that you did as well is cleaning. Like, you know, I've got this alcoholic who is causing all kinds of problems for my family and I can't do anything about that. So I'm going to, I mean, you, you specifically, when we would fight, you know, you didn't, uh, some people, I, I, when we would argue, I would start eating. I'd eat chips and sugar. And Lay in bed. And sulk and eat. Yeah. And, but you would start cleaning like crazy. And what we found 
through dealing with lots of people in similar situations is that's very common to just start like scrubbing everything. Yeah. And, you know, I read a book about your stress cycle and there's been lots of research that's done about your stress cycle and completing it. So, um, I know that it kind of sounded like a distraction and, and the difference between you and I is like, if you were to have been cleaning or gardening or something after an argument, you would be thinking about everything that ran through that argument. Uh-huh. I did not. I didn't give it hardly any thoughts at all. You so just shut it, it off. And, shut it off. But you needed something to help you distract, right? Yeah. And sometimes if it was something more labor intensive and like moving or rearranging, you know, or really scrubbing the baseboard or the grout in the tile floor in the kitchen, which is white that and stuff stupid. Gets scrubbed? It used to. <laughs> used to when we fought more. <laughs> but whoever put in a white tile with white grout, they were stupid. Um, but, you know, sometimes Sorry that... to make you <laughs> re rethinking uh, remodeling choices yeah. to any of well, our listeners. Well, if it's in your kitchen be... where everybody stands, so... We're not calling you stupid. It, it just... It looked great when we moved in. Well, part of the thing that makes me think of that is because when we bought the house, you were like, oh, this is such a nice white floor. I hope you keep it clean. I said you? you yeah. How rude. How sexist. It was a very much like that. jerky thing to say. Um, God, I don't but know anyhow, I feel like I like burned out that like stress. So instead by, of like exercising, and, yeah, instead oh, of like gotcha. going out and exercising and I could shut it off and, you know burn out that stress cycle to alleviate it by getting heavily involved in something that wasn't you, that wasn't the argument, that was something physical. That, and and when it would turn to like a cleaning and organizational thing, that would be me trying to assume control and put my life back in order in a small little part of our house. Yeah. Yeah, so control, cleaning, these are things that people use to medicate so to speak, um, when dealing with a spouse that's an alcoholic. Research, that's another one that people talk a lot about, just going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole on what's wrong with me, what's wrong with my husband, what's wrong with my family, who's got a solution. So hours and hours spent listening to podcasts, which I don't think we're going to criticize listening to podcasts. That's probably a good thing. But you can't overdo it like you can everything. Mm-hmm. Um Books, internet searches, uh, technology is another one, just not so much necessarily as research, but as a distraction, scrolling, you know, social media, it, any, you know, there's people that just get caught in that, uh, apparently now. YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah. Apparently now, like according to Saturday Night Live, they made a parody of people that were during COVID looking for Homes on real estate websites. So That's a just new like yeah, just like kind of addiction. looking at your new like looking at different homes and obviously with COVID like home improvement. So looking at well, that sort of stuff. Certainly, if you're looking for homes, uh, as you know, as you're dealing with COVID boredom, don't pick one with white grout in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, that's... Well, they'll sell clear. you on it because it looks so pretty. It does. It does. But, it but who's going to clean it? But they don't Not st- the it doesn't stay pristine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, food is another one that, you know, maybe it, it, it's a form of medication. Uh, again, we talked about you 
you would actually go on like a fast when you would be most stressed and highest anxiety and and not eat and scrub the floor instead. But for a lot of people, myself included, uh, eating is a form of relief and and eating not necessarily nutritiously is well, a form you, of relief. Yeah, especially because like with our foods, um, having all the chemicals and the right balance of salt and sugar that releases and these food chemists are not dumb. Right. So they've figured out a way to give you relief and comfort with Absolutely. that. Shopping is another one. There's no there's no shortage of things that people do to medicate when they're in a stressful family and relationship situation. It's just another form of addiction. It's less obvious, but it's definitely not less serious. And I think that's the point that we're trying to make. The <clears throat> the outward expression of the things that you are forced to do as the spouse of an alcoholic to survive to get that little bit of relief is, you know, the, the things that you're forced to do, the, the collateral damage, the outwardly obvious consequences. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I got it that time. I got a frog in my throat. Uh, the things that you're forced to do are, are less obvious. Like, who's ever going to say, oh, you're cleaning your house. That's terrible. You shouldn't do that. Yeah. You're, you're hurting yourself you by doing that. to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, but clearly there is a, if you're doing it to find that little bit of relief from the anxiety, that's not good. That's not a good mental health place to be. Because again, going back to the beginning, what we talked about, homeostasis, that brain is seeking this equilibrium. And if you're having to fight to inject things into your life to find the relief that your brain needs from the high stress cycle that you're living in, it's not necessarily any better for you than being the alcoholic himself who's drinking himself to death. So that's a pleasant thing to talk about, huh? Mm -hmm. um, but even though the damage is less obvious, it's just as serious damage that we're doing to ourselves, that you as the spouses are doing to yourselves, that's being done to the kids too. This is really scary. The more I learn about this, the the more sad I am about the impact that we had on our kids during my alcoholism. But just, it makes me sad for everybody because I don't think people, generally speaking, recognize how the change in their moods, just the way they carry themselves, the stress and anxiety that they're managing, how that is impacting their kids. People think, oh, you know, we don't fight in front of the kids so that the kids don't know anything's wrong. The kids know when something's wrong. Even if it's, you know, well hidden from the outside, kids are super intuitive and they absorb they absorb stress and tension around them. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. I also think that they know your normal, quote yeah. unquote, behavior. Yeah. So anything outside of that normal, too much whispered talking or... You know, because like we would sometimes try to close the door and act like we're just going to have a conversation. Um, but, you know, like they know, like put that's just on high weird. alert. Yeah, that's just weird at that time of the day because that's not your normal weekly talk or, you know, not talking to one another or avoiding each other. So the, so the damage that's done to ourselves in an alcoholic relationship, both to the alcoholic and the loved one and the, the spouse is also done to the kids hard or I would say impossible to avoid no matter how good a job we think we're doing. And so these family cycles get com 
get created. Um, someone that we were talking to earlier this week talked about how her mother's love language, referring to the love languages book. Do you remember the author? Gary. Gary Chapman. Chapman. That's right. As soon as you said Gary, it popped in my head. Very popular, well-known, millions of copies sold book about love languages. And the, the real love languages are things like physical touch and, you know, words gifts. of affirmation and gifts. Can you remember them all? Um, physical touch, words of affirmation, gifts, quality time. Is there a fifth? It was five love it languages? five. I think it's um, giving... Giving the person a wet willy from behind oh, when they don't yes. see it coming. That's yes, the fifth love language. Yes. Well, anyway. Pets. That should just be the fifth love language. Having pets. a pet. Having yes. A pet. So we're adding to the love languages. But anyway, they're, they're logical things, show, ways to show affection for one another. But this person that we were talking with earlier in the week said that her mother's love language was cheese. <laughs> and I love that. Um, let's not deal with the situation at hand. Let's not talk about the elephant in the room. Let's just eat. And a primary food staple in their family was variety of cheeses, which as it is in our family, I love, I love mm. cheese. I love a variety of cheese. But it's just another way of, you know, the family cycle continues. We're going to suppress all the emotions. We're not going to deal with that. We're just going to eat our way through it. And it can be, you know, it's sad. It's dangerous and sad. And it's not resulting in jail time and wrecked cars, but from an emotional and brain standpoint, it's just as dangerous as the alcohol itself, the impacts on the alcoholics. Um, the, I, I, it's funny, it's interesting to me when I think about this stuff, and I think about this stuff all the time, and I read about it and try to get other people's perspectives. When I look at my life now, we're in our fifth year of sobriety, Sherry. And so I don't get that euphoric feeling from drinking anymore. It, the The biggest swings I get, highs and lows, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's true. I coach high school soccer. And when things go well, I feel really good. One of my mentors, a collegiate coach who won national championships, talks about how, you know, when it's going well, you feel really smart. And when it's going badly, you feel like, as he says, the dumbest son of a bitch that ever, you know, ever tried to coach. And so I get the the pretty low swing um, when things aren't going well in coaching. And that's as close as I come now to getting outside of what is a normal range of of high and low. And the reason I bring that up, it it kind of it starts the conversation into some of the other places in society besides alcohol and drug and other drug abuse where we see huge swings that cause damage in people's lives tiger woods is one that comes to mind i've read a couple of different books on tiger woods and watched every documentary i can find on tiger woods not because i'm a huge fan i mean i i am impressed by his accomplishments and his skills I, I don't think there's any doubt that he's one of the best golfers and one of the best athletes that's ever walked the planet but at what price is the question I mean he's had addiction problems um, in, marital problems drug alcohol and sex addiction problems marital problems he's now had his second life-threatening car accident that I you know I don't know that they've 
pointed to any substances. I, I think they've cleared him of yeah. any any question about there being any substances. But what about the overall impact of the medication that he's been on for years and years for pain relief? I mean, we know we know that he's abused his pain relievers at some point. Um, so I'm not trying to say that on the car accident that happened recently that he was under the influence. Don't please don't misunderstand. But what I am saying is when you've got these highs and all the things that it takes to getting to this point of being the best of the best of the best of anything, that pendulum's got to swing down the other way and it's going to swing a long way the other way into things like depression, anxiety, um, you know, unmanageable mood swings, looking for relief in other places, whether it's sex or substances, um, that's just got to be a painful existence. And it gets repeated over and over in sports, in in business, in politics. How many times, how many stories do we need to hear about someone that excels in whatever it is they do and mm-hmm. they're the best? And then there's this dark side, this crash that you just can't even believe. This guy is one of the richest guys in the world. How could he not have everything you know perfect in his life? But really, there's all kinds of terrible stuff going on in the background and it's because that pendulum's got to swing the other way too it's um yeah yeah i was just i feel like it's almost everybody now that you i mean for one there's no hiding anything right right because reporters social media everybody having camera phones yeah you know but i feel like anybody who is at the top of their game is Mm -hmm. the best of whatever there's something that has driven them up there but that dark outside, seat, driven outside, them outside yeah, the realm of the normal way the brain's yeah. supposed to work. So they have to have this really deep, dark secret. I mean, it's really hard to find something that. I mean, even Oprah. God love her. Everybody loves Oprah. But her I love food, Oprah. But her food issues. Oh yeah, she swings like a big she, pendulum. I mean, too, right? like she has had so much food, and she's been food issues, and she's very open with it. So that was hers, right? Probably like the food issue. So even if it isn't. You know, if it's something seems very benign like that, you think of where she had put herself and worked so hard and grew so fast in a, in a, in a way that she had that food. And yeah. because she was in the public, right? And everybody judges. Right. So she had to look good. So then she, like, yo-yo dieted and flipped back and forth and yeah. gained weight, lost weight. Yeah, so. Well, I just it's to the point now for me where I see people that are the highest of the high in whatever. I mean, Gabor Mate, uh, who I've become obsessed with. obsessed with of late, he, uh, he, he, on a recent, well, I guess it was a while ago, there's a podcast episode um, with... Uh, Russell Brand. Russell Brand, yes. On Russell Brand's podcast, where he, he analyzes all the world leaders. And not just Donald Trump, but... Barack Obama and Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. And he analyzes all of them, which I know you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be the armchair psychologist. But he talks about to reach these heights in politics, sports, business, anything, there's got to be something that's driven you past the normal realm of the way the brain works. And, you know, there's there's got to be negative there that makes that happen. Trauma is specifically what he talks about on the Russell Brand podcast. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fascinating. Whenever I see someone that's the best of the best now, I don't just purely celebrate that and I'm not just in awe of that person. I'm thinking, ugh. 
wonder what happened to get them there and you know wonder what that person's home life is like and it's not a jealousy thing it's not like oh i wish i was that person oh my god i would never want to be the very best of the very best of of anything because it, you know we look at the sacrifice that it takes to get there sometimes and we oh that person just has more drive and motivation they were able to sacrifice so much to get to these heights but no they're sacrificing their mental stability mm-hmm. That doesn't sound attractive to me at all. Not at all. So I know I list, I've gone a little off the rails with talking about celebrities, but I I think it's appropriate to this conversation about the pendulum swinging and how all we really want. I can't tell you how many times I've heard you, Sherry, and and other spouses of alcoholics say, I just want peace. I just want calm, uneventful peacefulness. One of the times that I think of in our lives when that was most on display was your 40th birthday, which is one of the worst memories that you have of my drinking. It, it comes up frequently, it, and I know it was super painful for you. We had friends who had a condo in Vail, and you know we're not really Vail kind of people, I guess is a fair way to say that. But we, our, our friends offered us their condo in Vail for your 40th birthday, and we were super grateful. We took them up on the offer, and we went, and I just turned it into a party, you know, drinking before I even got the, the bags out of the car. And I wanted to make sure that you got to stay out late at the bar and got a nice dinner and, you know, all these excuses for me to drink because with a nice dinner comes wine, and with staying out late dancing and listening to the band is lots of drinking and and all you wanted was to sit on the back porch of this condo on the the morning of the first full day that we were there and sit in the sun and just relax. Because we had gone on a hike in the morning. Uh-huh. And then we had mimosas. And I was like, oh, this is nice. But I'll tell you where my nightmare started. Yes. Was about 40, 30 minutes into the drive. We hit traffic on a Friday night coming out there. And you were so mad and aggravated at the traffic because it was summer. It wasn't like it was ski season. And it hit me. Why doesn't he just want to sit in the car and talk to me? I mean, we don't have kids to try to entertain or or we don't have to worry about like stopping and going to the bathroom. We can just talk and we, we can no freely talk. We can be late. Yeah, we didn't have anything. any we weren't in a rush to go anywhere. So it was like, gosh, we just have all this free time. We're stuck in traffic. Who cares? You know, we could curse in our conversation if we wanted we could listen to whatever, you know, music. We didn't have to worry about any of that. Well, and then I figured it out. You just wanted to get parked so you could start your weekend. Start drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was your weekend then. Right. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, the feeling, and but then that next day when you just wanted to sit on the porch, you just wanted peacefulness. And that's a recurring theme, yes, for you? Yeah. And at the time, I thought, oh, she's just this, what did you call yourself earlier? A bumpkin Midwesterner or something? Oh, Oh, sorry. Ho-hum. Ho-hum Midwesterner. But it was, again, like, even at this point, I knew that you had gone way over, like, what I would consider normal drinking. You know, this was 10 years ago. Um, So even that Saturday, we got, we went on a hike, and we came back and had the mimosas. I just wanted to sit and be in your company. I guess it was like a test. Like, do I even still like this guy? And I just wanted to sit in the calm and the quiet and talk with you and not have to be entertained, but just be with you. And we hear it over and over again. I just want 
you know, what are, what are your hopes for this weekend or this vacation or this trip you're going to take? I just want peace. What? Oh, the holidays. Oh, what is your hope for Christmas? I just want calm. This is what we hear from the spouses. I don't all want the time. anything eventful. Yeah. Or super memorable. <laughs> yeah. I don't want that pendulum to swing either direction, either up because I know what the crash is going to be coming back down. And I don't want to deal with the, the pendulum swinging toward the depression and the anxiety. So we just want peace. We hear in the world of addiction recovery all the time that sobriety is not the opposite of addiction. Connection is the opposite of addiction. And I've agreed with that and gone along with that for a lot of years now. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I'm starting to believe that connection is not the right word. Don't misunderstand. Connection is super important. It's necessary to gaining long-term sobriety. It's necessary to the recovery process, both for the alcoholic and for the loved ones. It's what our Echoes of Recovery program is all about, connection. So I'm not devaluing connection. But when I think of what the actual opposite of addiction is, I'm starting to believe it's self-esteem faith and confidence in ourself. When our self-esteem is low, we engage in stuff that makes us feel better. And that's the medication that we talked about. That's the scrubbing the floor. I mean, you're not just mad at your alcoholic. You're not just mad at me, Sherry, when you're in that state of mind. You're mad at yourself for getting to this point of being in this relationship with this alcoholic. How did I let this happen to myself? And what am I going to do about it? That's the other thing. I can't live like this. So all kinds of stress and anxiety about what's the next step. Am I going to leave him? Am I going to kill him? You know, what am I going to do? So th that to me, I think, is a shot to the self-esteem. You feel bad about yourself. So you engage in stuff to make yourself feel better. You medicate, and that's exactly what addiction is. That's why we drinkers drink. I mean, sure, it started out we drank because it was fun, but eventually we're drinking. How many times do you hear people say, oh, I just need to relax at the end of the day. I had a stressful work week, so I'm drinking to relieve the stress. That's, that's relief from something painful, relief from suffering. And when you're scrubbing the floor or you know going down a thousand rabbit holes researching how addiction works, all of that is just relief from feeling bad about yourself. And so that's just, that's my opinion that, you know, the the connection is really, really important. But I think how bad we feel about ourselves, this the hit to the self-esteem, that might, and, and having good self-esteem might actually be the opposite of addiction. Because if you feel good about yourself and you're not suffering, you're not looking for something to medicate and to relieve the pain. Does that make sense when I say that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, here's here's the solution. We need to lower our expectations. Yes. You're kind of smiling. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's funny because I remember going into our relationship, and we, we have talked about this, so this is no surprise to Matt, um, but I had a lot of expectations for you. Okay. Like, as my future partner, you ticked off a lot of the things that I felt that I missed 
as a child growing up and what I wanted in my spouse and what I, if we did have kids and all that. So you had this real, you didn't know it, but you carried all these expectations. Let's see if I can remember Let's see, hair all over my body. That was one of them that you missed out on. No? No. I checked your back. I made sure he were not, like, completely hairy. Okay. Well, but, okay. But, yeah. Stability. Just stability, education. Earning potential. Career, yeah. Theoretical earning potential. <laughs> like, you know, that you had a career, that you were motivated, you were funny, um, but you had a serious side. Like, I just, I remember, like, thinking then you know, years into our relationship, like, wow, I really did a disservice to myself and to him by having all these expectations. And I should have just lowered them and not in a bad way lowered them, but not put so much energy of what I was going to get out of you, you know, and what I expected out of you out of life because I think that probably made you feel unbeknownst you probably felt a lot of pressure especially when it came to the financial side of things you know i don't know there were times when i felt pressure but i felt i was pretty proud of myself i had a pretty big ego and i uh i felt like i would have no problem living up to those expectations but i and you'll remember this even from early on i had this feeling that I, I was meant to do something big in the world. Like God had a big plan for me. Mm-hmm. And I would actually talk about that. And ra- you know <laughs> I wasn't very good at living in the present. I was really good at regrets from the past and dreams for the future. But I was never very good at living in the present. And not many people, frankly, are. But I, I guess I'm here to issue a warning of sorts. If the person that you're in love with is someone that's determined to change the world, you probably want to re- you know think a little bit about that. At what personal cost will this person go to extremes to, to leave a lasting impact on the world? It sounds super arrogant. I know that. But I, know, I also know I'm not the only person that has this dream that they're going to do something big. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God's plan is. I don't know what my destiny is. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to do something big. I remember, and I would always counter that with, why do you think that you're supposed to be something so big and special? Why can't you just be like the best dad you can possibly be? And that make you happy. And the good news is now it does. Like now that's where I want to be. Um, I just want to have some kind of impact on the people that I'm blessed with in my life. And that's enough. But for a long time, that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And if you've got that mindset, people talk a lot about addictive personalities. I don't really know what an addictive personality is. But maybe it's this. If you've got this mindset that you've got to achieve to some astronomical level and you won't be satisfied with yourself if you don't, that's going to cause you a great deal of suffering, even if you get there. And the suffering that that's going to cause, whether you get there or not, is going to require medication at some point. And if you happen to feel euphoric after two and a half IPAs, guess what? The medication you're going to choose is very likely to be alcohol with all of its destructive consequences. So this sounds like, you know, my new philosophy is don't ever dare to dream. Uh, don't try to make anything good that. of yourself. But when your expectations are too high, you're trying to get that pendulum to swing so far to the positive Boy, that thing's going to swing back and it's going to bite you. So, yeah, 
So maybe lowering your expectations of yourself and the people around you is is uh, is a positive. I think it all comes down to this thing that humans suck at, and that is living in the present. Um, you know that there it's a tenant, a core tenant of Buddhism, but it also has a place in Christianity. And I think probably I haven't studied all the religions, but probably all the religions have a place for being content living in the present. And most humans I know are just terrible at it. Mm-hmm. But it's there's a lot of peace there. And if peace is what you seek, and for a lot of the spouses of alcoholics that we know, peace is exactly what they seek, living in the present and just being thankful for what we've got, thankful for our opportunities, things like that. Um, it's a great way to to not let the pendulum swing too far and to build that self-esteem. Just be happy with, you know, the impact that we're having in our little circle. Be happy to wake up in the morning in a warm house and, uh, you know, with, with all the blessings that we have. That's really good. Um, and, you know, it all comes down to listening to our instincts. This is another piece that... Um, that I, I like to bring in um, the, the yin and yang between instincts and insecurities. We've got to do a good job at listening to our instincts and blocking out the insecurities. The insecurities come when you know we're when you're being gaslit and you're hearing the deni- denials that you know aren't true and just the outright lies that are so much. Uh, an intertwined part of alcoholism and living with alcoholism, the instincts become cloudy. We can't hear those. All we can hear is the, uh, you know, the insecurities that make us question everything about what we're doing. And the instincts come down to do what feels good and ignoring the opinions of others. It doesn't matter what somebody else says you should do. It doesn't even matter what I'm saying you should do here on this podcast. You need to listen to your instincts and do the things that feel good. And the more I get better at that, the more I stop caring what other people think, the more I stop worrying about income and status and things like that, and the more I just do the things that bring me joy. Coach high school soccer, even though there's almost no money in it because I love it that much, the impact that I'm having on the kids and the joy I get that just comes off of their joy. Like I get to scrape a little off of each one of them and it makes me feel good. And doing that and not caring what anybody else thinks about it is it's really uh, the instinctual key to staying in the present and finding that self-esteem. Because you know what? I'd be willing to bet Tiger Woods doesn't have the self-esteem we all think he does, even though he's you know, arguably the best athlete and best golfer of all time. Um, his self-esteem is not in a healthy place. A uh, little armchair psychology from a guy who is not a psychologist and has never and never will meet Tiger Woods. So that's a little scary. But it's it's hard to argue that point. You know, it there's something there's something there. So keeping doing doing what feels good and and trying to boost our self-esteem in a responsible place that keeps us in that homeostasis, keeps us in equilibrium not a wild swing, not waiting for something wonderful to happen so that we can feel good about ourselves. Just 
feeling good about kind of the good things and not worrying about the great things. So that's that's kind of that's all my philosophizing for today, Sherry. How do you feel? Are you are you doing a are you feeling better about living in the equilibrium, living in the homeostasis now that you don't have the wild swings of some crazy alcoholic, hair-covered Greek alcoholic? Um, apparently, I'm really into all the hair on my body I right guess. now. Maybe that's a sign you should shave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy talk. I do feel more comfortable because I feel like my maybe my, like, I call it mediocrity. <laughs> In a way, like my just kind of day-to-day, not going to go conquer the world. I don't have great big ambitions. I just want to be good to the people around me and good to myself and my community. I feel like that that makes me feel comfortable and good, and I feel like I'm at a good spot with that and and appreciate that. Um, And to a large extent, you've always felt that way. You just wanted to kind of do your part, raise good kids... Raise and, good humans. And the other day... Not raise good kids, raise good humans. Excellent correction. The other day, though, we were on a walk and we were trying to identify what your addictions are. We 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 know that I'm an alcoholic or was an alcoholic. And then we were able to easily come up with three other addictions that I have. Um, but we struggled to find any addictions for you. And I think the mediocrity, is that the word you used? Mm-hmm. We should rename the podcast Mediocracy. You know, remember that movie Idiocracy? Yes. I love that, that movie. That was a great movie. We should rename the podcast kind Mediocracy. Gross, but yeah. But your mediocrity brings a lot of joy to your life because you are in that state of equilibrium and homeostasis. Yeah. And going back to one of the last argumentative comments you made on my 40th birthday when we were away after we had had fighting all Saturday night. Mm-hmm. By that time, I was done. Yeah, I wasn't living up to your expectations. You didn't want to sit on the porch with me anymore? I didn't want to sit on the porch with you anymore. You were like, oh, wait. Yeah. So I remember you said, if it wasn't for me, we wouldn't do anything because I make all the plans. Mm. So the things that I thought would be great to do for my birthday were not in sync with you. Mm-hmm. And so you also felt that you needed to keep the ball rolling because... Me living in this, you know, could sit on this back deck forever enjoying the peace because we had four young kids at home. That was just not good enough. Like, that is just lame. Even in our little mundane so, life, I needed to get that pendulum swinging higher. Yeah, yeah. Because, you, you know, it was it was time away. It needed to be this great epic thing. It couldn't yeah. just be restorative and it couldn't just be lame and, and quiet. No, so we needed to party with the fancy veil people. Close the bar, Yay. stay out as late as they they did. Yeah. I mean, that's where my mindset was. Yeah. I'm not saying it was right. I'm saying actually to the opposite. Mediocrity, that's where it's at. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for living this mediocre life. What an inspiring podcast episode. <laughs> Aim lower, people. <laughs> You're aiming too high. Your expectations for yourself and your loved ones are too high. But I got to tell you, it feels pretty good to be kind of hanging out in the middle. Yeah. The middle. See, there was even that TV sh- There's even that TV show called The Middle. Yeah, I don't think in. they were glorifying the middle I, in that TV yeah, show. Yeah, they're not. But you can have a better middle. Yeah, a better middle. Mediocrity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Mediocrity Podcast. Oh, I love you, Sherry. <laughs> 
Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.